This is Mormon Awakenings. Please email me at mormonawakenings at gmail.com. When I was younger, in school, I went and saw David Copperfield in Chicago. At the time, David Copperfield was a huge act. He was incredibly cheesy, but he was world-renowned, sold-out theaters, and I went to Chicago and saw his magic show, and it was awesome. He impaled this woman on a spear. That was just one of his tricks. It looked so realistic. I, I could hardly believe it, but of course, that's what made it great. It was so realistic that you did believe it. Chopped people in half, made people disappear. It was unbelievable, yet so believable. Later on, I saw another really cool magic act in New York. There was this guy who rented out a couple rooms in the Waldorf in New York City and put on these small shows, maybe 50 to 75, maybe 100 people were in there, but it was a small show inside a suite that he had rented. And he did very interesting tricks and illusions, including reading the minds of some of the patrons. Highly effective. Again, just incredible. Incredible, by the way, means not credible or not believable. And yet it was so believable that you could hardly believe that you actually believed it. That's what's great about magic shows. Your belief brings the magic show alive, makes the whole thing work. And great magicians are masters at doing things in a way that distract your attention and manipulate your thought processes so that you believe the magic that they're performing on stage is real. When you leave a good magic show, you leave thinking, wow, that guy, well, he's a magician. He's got special powers. You leave thinking you've seen something novel. And not just novel, you leave thinking that the magician actually has power. There are two thinkers, one named Don Miguel Ruiz, the second named Noam Chomsky, who say in one way or another that, in fact, we're all kind of magicians. All of us have the ability to cast spells, according to these two thinkers, who, by the way, couldn't be more different from each other. Don Miguel Ruiz wrote a book called The Four Agreements. It's a book I've talked about before. In the opening pages of the book, Don Miguel Ruiz paints a vignette of a mother who's exasperated, tired, worn out. And while this mother is trying to wrap things up at the end of the day, get everything settled so that she can get a few hours of sleep, her daughter is singing cheerfully, but in a way that irritates the mother. And Don Miguel Ruiz posits that if this mother snaps at the daughter and says something like, please stop singing, your singing is so annoying, I can't take it. And if that child, that little girl, believes her mother, believes that her singing is annoying, that she has no talent, no ability, if the little girl believes this, then the mother's words effectively become a spell cast on that little girl, and the little girl will never sing again, will not develop her singing talent, should she have any. In this sense, Don Miguel Ruiz is trying to illustrate, the mother is like a magician, and in this case, a bad magician, who casts an evil spell on her own daughter through her words. And if that daughter believes those words, then that spell becomes efficacious. One can imagine the opposite scene as well, of course, in which there's a mother who loves her daughter so much and is in such a good mood. And let's take a little bit further and stipulate that her daughter has no singing ability, but the mother loves her daughter and loves her singing so much that she says, oh, what a beautiful singing voice you have. It's so wonderful. How I love to listen to it. Well, that might inspire the girl to take what little talent she has and make the most of it. 
to take lessons to work hard to practice and become a better singer. Well, in this second situation, a spell is cast as well, but a good spell, activated again by the belief of the daughter. But not just the belief of the daughter, activated and sent out by the belief of the mother. So there's two steps in this spell casting. The emotion attached to the words as they're sent out and the belief or the acceptance of the words by the receiver. In this case, the mother being the sender and the daughter being the receiver. According to Don Miguel Ruiz, we're all this type of magician all the time. We can all cast and receive spells all the time. He lays out this vignette at the beginning of his book, The Four Agreements, which is excellent. You ought to read it in order to present his very first of the four agreements, which is be impeccable with your word. Be aware that your words are so powerful, dangerously powerful. We were taught as kids that sticks and stones may break our bones, but words can never hurt us. That's probably the one of the great falsehoods of all time. Sticks and stones, sure, they can break your bones, but they can't change your life's trajectory like words can especially if you believe them and transform them into spells. In The Four Agreements, Don Miguel Ruiz speculates further about what happens to the spell casters in life whose spells aren't received. Because that can happen to all the would-be spell casters as well. Sometimes people say things to you, and unlike the mother in the example, sometimes people say things to you that are intentionally mean and harmful and hurtful. Well, what happens if you, the intended recipient, reject them? Don't receive the words. Don't believe them. Well, Don Miguel Ruiz has an opinion about that. He says that those rejected spells bounce back and affect the spellcaster in the way that they were intended to hurt the intended recipient. So if you're trying to cast an evil spell, if you're trying to intentionally hurt somebody, through your words, and and all the intent in those words is rejected by the intended recipient, then that bounces back and affects you adversely. So be careful how you use spells. Well, to some readers of this sort of stuff, it sounds like a lot of mumbo-jumbo. Just hippy-dippy New Age stuff with no scientific bearing or support or evidence and makes for a great book. And okay, yeah, we'll all be careful with what we say to each other. Sure, that makes sense. And don't let someone talk you out of becoming a good singer if you have talent and blah, blah. You know, okay, fine. But it's not really true. I mean, there's not really power. There's not really anything metaphysically efficacious about any of this stuff, right? Well, there's another guy named Noam Chomsky. Noam Chomsky has been at MIT, Massachusetts Institute of Technology in Cambridge, Massachusetts for most of his adult life. Noam Chomsky is thought of as being a very liberal thinker, a very leftist kind of guy. People think of him as being very political, and he's at the world's premier technology institute in Cambridge, MIT. But Noam Chomsky is, in fact, a linguist. He's not a hard scientist. He's a scientist, but not a scientist of computer coding or hard technology like you think of most people at MIT. But rather, he's a linguist. He thinks about language and how language is used by those in power in particular and how language affects us, us being the masses. He studies the power of propaganda. And his main point is that entrenched power, the incumbents, be they political incumbents, or commercial incumbents, people who have power of some sort, use language systematically 
to stay in power and keep the masses, you and I, down. That people in power use language in ways that affect us subconsciously, and not just affect us, but manipulate us through our beliefs, through our emotional reactions. And though he's a linguist, he is at MIT after all, and so he spent most of his career collecting data and evidence supporting his claims and his theories. Noam Chomsky does not, of course, call any of these practices spellcasting or magic. He doesn't refer to people as good or bad magicians. He doesn't talk about how our beliefs activate any of these spells. But in many ways, Noam Chomsky is saying the same thing Don Miguel Ruiz is. Words have power. And you better be careful how you use words when you're speaking them. And you also better be quite aware of just exactly how you're receiving the words of others. The reason I'm telling any of you this is because I had a very interesting experience this past couple weeks. A woman I've been home teaching, or rather ministering to, for many years while I've been here in New England, totaled her car. Well, she didn't total it. Her grandson totaled it. Her car is old to begin with. It was given to her by the previous bishop of our ward. Her grandson, who is now 20 years old, was pulling out of the parking lot of their apartment building, and the car in front of him suddenly braked, and he rear-ended the car. It actually didn't do all that much damage, but the car was so old that the insurance company totaled it, which means the insurance company decided it was cheaper to just give this woman that I minister to a check instead of fixing the car. Well, this woman I home teach, how, how can I describe her? She's full of life force, unbridled life force, but just full of just life energy, emotion. She's highly volatile. She's also very intelligent. She's very articulate and she has no filter. She's like a, a cauldron full of some sort of brew that's on a fire. And the brew's very viscous, but it's hot. And every now and then a bubble perks up and bursts and then something pops out of her. Sometimes what comes out of her is very gracious and beautiful. And then sometimes it's just full of venom. And she's constantly just spewing out whatever is coming out of her, be it good and gracious or venomous. And whatever comes out of her comes out in highly articulate phrases, highly interesting word combinations. And all of this stuff that comes out of her, all of the emotion and the life force and the words all in combination constitute in the words of Don Miguel Ruiz, spells, sometimes good, sometimes terrible. Over the years, she's hurled all of these spells at her children and now her grandson. And don't get me wrong, some of these spells have been really wonderful and she's done a lot of really good things. She's been very generous, but when she gets frustrated or angry, she spews out these evil spells. And compared to sticks and stones, these words that she throws around, well, they're these horrible words. Well, they've caused a lot of misery for her and for others. In this particular case, the case of her totaled car and her grandson, she told me how she told him how stupid he was and careless and horrible. And and as I was listening to her on the phone, just spout all this venom, I just thought about her poor grandson receiving this from her, hearing all this from her which I'm sure he did because I've witnessed it myself or scenes similar to it when I've been at their house. So I thought about him. Luckily for him, he's of the age where he just sort of tunes her out, even though I'm sure there's some sort of subconscious effect on him. But then I thought about her. She's spewing out all of these spells using the words of Don Miguel Ruiz. And they're either being accepted by her grandson in this case, who is the intended recipient of these spells, 
or they're bouncing off of him because he's not believing them, and they're returning to her. That's the second principle of Don Miguel Ruiz. Whatever spells you cast that aren't accepted, they come back to you in kind. So this woman I home teach may think she's venting by casting all these horrible spells, but if her grandson, in this case, rejects them, they bounce off of him and go back towards her. This, of course, contradicts what people talk about in pop psychology, which is that you need to vent. We all need to vent. But, well, according to Don Miguel Ruiz, if you vent in a way that amounts to casting a spell, but then the spell is rejected by its intended target, the spell just comes back and infects you worse. Venting can actually compound your problems. Well, that's weird. And, you know, Don Miguel Ruiz is a hippie, and this is all new age stuff, and this is all nonsense. Even if I do, through my own sleight of hand, try to implicate real scholars like Noam Chomsky. Of course, if you live long enough, you know that Don Miguel Ruiz is onto something. If you live long enough, you know you have to become aware of the spells cast on you by others. No matter who those others are or have been in your life, you have to become aware of all the spells, all the words, and all the emotional power packed into those words that have been directed at you over the years by your parents, by your leaders, by your teachers, by whomever, your spouse, your children even. You know at a certain age that you must be independent of, break out of, break away of, reject, however you want to think about it, the words of others, the spells of others. Likewise, the older you get, you know you have to be careful with your own words and the emotion or belief or life energy or however you want to think about it, you pack into your own words. You learn over time to cast only good spells. So over time, if you want to be a responsible human being, you learn to stop allowing yourself to be manipulated by others, and then you learn how to control what comes out of you. Seems so simple. Routine, even. A natural part of life. Why is it even worth mentioning? Everyone understands this and all its implications. Why are you even talking about this? Well, there's a great story. And everyone in our communities heard it. The story of the Iron Rod. It was first seen in vision by Lehi, the great patriarch. Lehi saw this vision of this path and an iron rod. And... People pressing along this path and clinging to this iron rod step by step, hand over hand through the mists of darkness as they go towards some place. As far as we know, the people on the path, including Lehi, by the way, who's having the vision, they don't know the ultimate destination. They don't know where the path is taking them other than it's the path they're to be on. Well, it's a great metaphor and image for life, isn't it? Just going one step at a time, not being able to see too far into the distance. Anyways, at the end of the iron rod and this path that they've been following for some reason, they get to the tree of life, this beautiful tree full of glowing white fruit. In Lehi's vision, he got to the end of the path, the end of the iron rod. He saw the tree and he reached up and pulled down some of the fruit and ate the fruit and it was the greatest fruit ever. Okay, so he's pressing along this path. He's not sure where the path is leading to but he knows he needs to stay on the path. He's clinging to the iron rod. He's going through the mists of darkness. And then he gets to this tree with this beautiful fruit at the end. That's the destination. And the fruit represents the love of God. So at the end of this path that's enshrouded in darkness, 
in which you have to cling to this rod just to get through. That's how thick the darkness is. And you're probably not even sure why you're on the path, but you know you need to be on the path and you're clinging to the rod. You're not sure why, but you think that that's going to keep you on this path that you should be on, but you're not quite sure where you're going. At the end of all that, then you get this fruit that represents the love of God and you get a partake of this fruit. And that's what happened to Lehi. He partakes of the fruit. Lehi realizes the love of God. He partakes of the love of God. And I state it that way because I don't think Lehi earned the love of God by walking this path and clinging to the rod. There are people who tell the story in that way, or at least imply it. They use language in a Noam Chomskyan way, in such a subtle way that you don't even notice it playing on your emotions, but, but it's taught often in our community as, as a great reward for clinging to the iron rod, it being in this case the fruit. So the fruit is taught, at least implied, typically when it's taught inside our Sunday school classrooms, as if that's the great reward for clinging to the rod and staying to the path, that, that the reward is then you have earned the love of God. But I think these words taught in this way this spell, in fact, confuses us on the true nature of the fruit and the true nature of the love of God. I don't think the love of God is the reward. I think the real meaning, the good spell, is that the process of walking along the path to a destination unknown, clinging to a rod, you're not sure why, you just do, experiencing the mist of darkness, well, all that only helps make you aware of how much God loves you. And being aware of God's love, well, that's what makes the fruit so sweet. I think that's what's happening to Lehi when he gets to the end and he sees the tree and he reaches up and he pulls down the fruit and he partakes in the fruit so sweet. What's really happening is that Lehi is suddenly aware of something. He realizes for the first time the love of God. He's aware of it, how much God loves him. And I think it's an important distinction because becoming aware of something that is is quite different than earning a reward. Becoming aware of something that is means that you've acquired new insight. You have new beliefs about something. And in this case, it's God's love. And God's love never changes. God always loves you, always has loved you. But your awareness of it has changed. You've changed. And this is what happens when Lehi reaches up and grabs the fruit. He has changed. He's become aware. He's become enlightened about something, in this case, God's love. And how sweet it is. He calls to his family. He wants his family to become aware of the love of God. And he sees other people pressing along the path, hand over hand along the iron rod. And he sees other people partaking of the fruit. But then he notices something very interesting. Off in the distance, beyond the tree, there's this huge floating building full of people jeering at those who are partaking or becoming aware of the love of God. They're jeering at the people partaking of the fruit. Well, what on earth is going on here? Furthermore, there are some people who partook of the fruit. They notice the jeering of the people in the building, and then they turn away from the fruit. They become ashamed that they partook of the fruit. What a weird thing. And what is it trying to tell us? This odd story of walking along this path and going through the mists of darkness and realizing the love of God, but then being jeered at and feeling ashamed. What is that all 
add up to, well, maybe beliefs and spells and rejecting or accepting the spells cast on you by others, maybe one's ability to be aware of the spells and one's ability to be responsible over the spells you cast really do have an effect. Maybe that awareness and those abilities together represent prerequisites to experience the love of God. It seems like a pretty big jump to make, is it? I submit to you that you will never experience God's love in totality until you are completely independent from all the spells cast by others. And while I don't think you need to master your own ability to cast spells, you need to be aware of your own ability to cast those spells and start to use that ability judiciously. Only then will the jeering of all those in your life, which is tantamount to all the spells being cast by all the spellcasters in your life, only then, when you're free from that, can you really appreciate and enjoy continuously the love of God. Only then will you not allow others or yourself to talk you out of it, and you'll believe it. Bold claims by just some joker in an office in New England, and of course, by those words, I'm casting a spell on myself, which of course is part of life's lessons too. There's a writer named Mitch Horowitz. He wrote an excellent book called The Miracle Club, which summarizes the new thought movement in general, but a guy named Neville Goddard in particular. Neville Goddard was a sort of a spacey new age guy during the 30s, 40s, 50s, 60s even, who preached a lot about the power of thought. Neville Goddard takes some of these ideas one step further. He says that not only do words and thoughts and spells, as we've discussed them in this episode, have an effect on you. He says that your words and your thoughts and your beliefs are the only factors in producing the circumstances of your life. Said another way, there's no one to blame for your state or states of happiness, of freedom, of abundance, or of lack. There's no one to blame at all except for yourself because it all starts with your thoughts and your feelings and your beliefs. And it doesn't matter what anyone else is casting at you or doing to you or saying about you, you are the one who chooses. I thought it an extreme position when I first read this, which was a few years ago. A few years ago, I read The Miracle Club by Mitch Horowitz. I highly recommend it. At the, t- at the time, I thought that, that this basic supposition that the only person to blame is, well, me, I thought that was an extreme position when I first read it. Now it seems so blindingly obvious. So obvious that you can't even be aware of the love of God until you take total responsibility for the spells cast by others, for your own spells, for your words, for your thoughts, and until you learn to be really careful with this volatile, explosive stuff. Of course, the great sages, the great writers, the mystical, the religious leaders throughout history have understood this. And they've all tried to convey it to us in one way or another, sometimes through story and parable, sometimes through fantasy and fiction, through scripture. But like all things in life, it's just hard. It's basically impossible 
to convey experience. It's impossible to convey wisdom to others. The best that anyone can do is point you down the path and tell you to cling to the iron rod to get through the mists of darkness that are going to confuse you and take it one step at a time. People who tell you that are good magicians. People who tell you that are giving you just enough to enable you to take one more step without getting sidetracked. Because really, that's what life is. One step after another, one minute after another. The destination is often unknown, and we take each step with faith. And in the end, I think we do all learn how much God loves us. We become aware of that. We don't earn God's love. I think we become aware of it. But what a shame if at the point of awareness, you allow yourself to be distracted by the jeering, by the mocking, by the lack of belief of those who are less enlightened than you. Of course, that's an impossibility. It's shown that way in the story. And in the story, you remember those who heeded those in the great and spacious building turned away from the fruit. And it's told in that way, I think, not because there's a real risk of that happening to you once you get to the tree of life, but rather to show that one of the prerequisites, one of the requirements is that you learn how to completely free yourself from the spells of others. And I think implied is that you learn to cast only good spells yourself. We're mixing a lot of metaphors this episode. Magic and Chomsky and the tree of life, religion and words and spell casting and beliefs. It's all been kind of one jumbled stew. Sorry about that. But life sort of teaches us that way. It teaches us from all different angles. But it's pushing us towards a point of realization, of awareness, of God's love, of the abundance and ease that can come from that realization. And for those who haven't realized it yet, of course, they're going to jeer and mock and try to stop you through their own spells. But don't listen to them. The love of God is just too sweet. Well, I've gone on far too long. I hope you found something interesting here today. Please do email me at mormonawakenings at gmail.com. Until next time.